Why did sea pokers? I was driving down the road going, wow, wait a minute, is that, where is that? Genesis? Is it where? Okay. The book of James, chapter 1, we're going to read the first 20 verses, and I'm going to just talk to you tonight about uh, slowing down. I want to just, I want to orientate you to the book of James. So let's just read these first 20 verses. It's great stuff. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what, everybody? Patience or endurance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and, in, and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, the Greek, literally, a man of two minds. A man of two minds, a person of two minds. Unstable in all of his ways. The man, the person of two minds, is going to be unstable. They say one thing one minute, another thing the next. They say they believe one thing one minute, another thing the next. They say they've made up their mind about one thing, then they change it the next. That person is unstable in all their ways. Now goes on. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So it's talking there about a vain pursuit. If you're pursuing money only, it's a vain pursuit, and you will fade away in that pursuit. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love me. I'm going to stop right there, because next week I'm going to talk about the difference between testing and temptation. But let's pray about this tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts. Feed us out of the beautiful green pastures of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Let me orientate you to this book. Most people read the letters, read the books, and really don't know much about the background. So I want to just give you a, just a little bit of background into the book of James. Um, tradition places James as Jesus' half-brother. When you, when you read the Gospels, uh, there's a bunch of Jameses, a bunch of them. But this one, tradition, places this James as Jesus' half-brother. Now, why can't he be his full brother? Because, hey, two different daddies. Only Jesus could say, I was begotten by God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So James then was his half-brother. He became the leader, this James, of the Jerusalem church early on. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12 with me. Acts chapter 12, verse 15. 
I hope you brought a Bible tonight. If you didn't bring a Bible, shame on you. I saw people looking on real quick with somebody else. That's all right. Bring a Bible. Don't bring one that's too holy to mark in. Bring one you can mark all over. Okay? Acts chapter 12, verse 15. James became the leader, the leader of the Jerusalem church, which was the first one early on. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John. I'm sorry, let me go down to verse 15. But they said to her, now this is when Simon Peter got delivered from jail. He has gone to the house where all the disciples are holed up in fear. He's banging on the door. And it says that Peter kept telling them, it's me. This is Peter. It's me. They didn't believe it. Even though they had been praying for his deliverance. When God answered, they didn't believe it. Though the answer was standing at the door, they didn't believe it. But they said to her, because Mary went back there and told them, listen, it's Simon Peter. They said to her, you are beside yourself. You are crazy. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Wasn't that something? I can pray for somebody's deliverance from jail. And when they show up, I can believe that it's an angel instead of them. I love verses like this. It makes me feel better about me. Amen? Because they're, they're praying, they're fasting, they're calling out on God. The answer comes to the door and they don't believe it. So they said it's an angel. Now, Peter, verse 16, continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to who? James. Now notice how he separates the brethren from James. So notice with me that James was up there in, in rank. Because he said, tell James and the brethren. Well, who were the brethren? Well, it was the disciples that walked with Jesus. And guess what? James, the half-brother, wasn't one of them. He came in later. He came in post-resurrection. So he wasn't even one of the original twelve. Yet, he rose quickly in rank. So that Peter said, go tell James and the brethren. Now, take a right and go to chapter 15. Let's continue to look at how strongly James came into prominence in the early church. Acts 15, verse 13. It says, and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. You hear that authority? Listen to me. Now this is, they're having a conference. They're having a major conference. They're dealing with major theological issues as we jump into the middle of, of this chapter. So what happens? James has listened to what everybody had to say. Then he says, now you listen to me. Now who was there? Peter was there. John was there. The big guns were there. But look at this James, who wasn't one of the original twelve, saying, now you listen to me. There's authority there. And look what he says. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out, or take out of them a people for his name. He goes on and he, he talks. He's giving his opinion. I'm not going to go through the whole deal, but go to verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now look at verse 19. 
Say it with me. Therefore, I judge. Look what he's saying here. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and so on and so forth. Now, my only point is this. He's talking to all the big shots, and who has the final word? James. The same James that wrote the letter we're about to study. He said, I judge. There's lots of different versions to the Bible. In one version it says, uh, uh, he says um, something like, it's my opinion, and this is what's going to stand. He's not saying, go think about it. He's saying, here's my sentence. Matter of fact, I think the King James says, my sentence is. So he was stout, this James, all right? Take a, a, a right one more time, go to chapter 21. Let's look at one more example at how he rose in prominence in, in, the, in the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. Acts 21, 17. And when he had come to Jerusalem, or we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, they're talking about introducing Paul, okay, who used to be Saul and had been persecuting the church. So they brought Paul. And in verse 18, and the following day, Paul went in with us to who, everybody? James. Now, the validity of Paul's calling is being introduced now to the primary leadership of the early church. But look who has got to clear him. Look who's got to amen him. Look who's got to say, yeah, you are legitimate. You're no longer a persecutor. You're no longer Saul. We don't have to be afraid of you. Look who's got to clear him. James. Brought him to James, and all the elders were present. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't even give the elders names, but it gives James' name. So here's James with all the big gun elders of the early church, and he's the one who had to say, I witness to Paul, I witness to his calling, I witness to his apostleship. He's stout. It's interesting to me, he didn't even believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. He didn't even believe in him. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 3. John 7, verse 3. A lot of people look right over this, but this is really interesting to me because None of his family believe in him. You think you've had some family persecution? And you may have. But look at this. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here, that's talking to Jesus, and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, who was among his brothers? James. Well, then what in the world brought James to believing in his half-brother? What converted James? What made him say, oh my gosh, my brother was real. He really was the Messiah. What did it to him? I'll show you. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just take a right, go through Acts, go through Romans, come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
verse 3. Here's Paul talking. I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas. Who's that? Simon Peter. He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Some of them have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by who? Ha! That's what did it. The whole time he was out ministering, Jesus, I mean, y'all, walking on the water. I think I would believe in bro if I saw a bro walking on the water. But you know, there had to be some jealousy there. There had to be some envy. There had to be some conflict, family conflict, because the whole world followed after Jesus. But what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, a bunch, as we preached here one Sunday morning, a bunch of Old Testament saints came out of the grave and began walking around Jerusalem, being seen. The greatest evidence of the reality of Christ was his resurrection. I preached a little fun a funeral yesterday morning. A little baby had died. And you know what? I completely departed from my text, and I found myself, I mean, winding up and preaching the resurrection. Because, listen, like Paul said, if there be no resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. If there is no resurrection, this whole book is a lie. I'm talking about dead people coming back to life. If you can't preach resurrection, you, you can't preach Christianity. Now here's, here's Paul saying, here's what got James in. He sees his brother ministering, doesn't believe, mocks him in John chapter 3, makes fun of him. His whole ministry of three to three and a half years, James never embraced him as the Savior. But after he rose from the dead, after he had appeared to the disciples, to Simon Peter, and to 500 people, it says he particularly appeared to James. And James, I believe, I believe, I believe. So where do you find him after that? He was at Pentecost, numbered with 120. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 13. This is great. I mean, he says, hey, I believe, you got me. You're risen from the dead. I can't, I can't disagree with that. You can't disagree with success. You sure can't disagree with resurrection. So Acts chapter 1, verse 13. Let's, let's find James, waiting for the Spirit to fall. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Look at it says, Peter, James, but that's not this James. That was the disciple James, Peter, James, and John. And Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James. Look at all these Jameses. James, the son of uh, Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Look at all these Jameses. They're everywhere. It's like Joe. But look, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with, who everybody, say it, with his brothers. 
Well, James was in there. James was in there. So Jesus' half-brothers were all gathered in that, that upper room with Mama, Mary, waiting for the Spirit to fall. Where was Joseph? Apparently, he had died. But we never hear about Joseph again. After the early uh, section of the Gospels, you never hear about him again. But there they were, and there was James, waiting for the Spirit of God to fall. That's this James, the one who wrote the letter. Around 62 AD, he was martyred by being stoned to death. He gave his life as a martyr, beat to death for preaching Jesus, his brother, his half-brother, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? So in this letter, we're going to see that two things are on his mind. He repeats two things over and over again in the book of James. Spiritual growth. He's real concerned about spiritual growth, and we're going to see that. And are you ready? You would never guess this. But the second thing on his mind repetitively was being sensitive to other people in social relationships. You're going to see him homing in on that right there. Being sensitive to people in social relationships. James was real big on treating people with respect. Whoa, that's not very spiritual. Yeah, it's real spiritual. I think sometimes the church really errs, everybody, when we get out there and because we think we've got some corner on God, we don't treat people with respect. But you know what? I'll tell you this. If you ever get surrounded by a gang, and they mean to hurt you, let me tell you the most powerful thing you can do, treat them with respect. You know what most people want in social relationships? They want to be treated with respect, like they have value. And James is going to talk about that. We're going to see that. And it's going to bless you. It really is. Because there is a blessing that comes on the person who treats others with respect. They may not look like you, talk like you. They may have tattoos head to toe, shaved head, purple hair, green hair. But do you remember when you were young how you looked weird? Boy, I did. I see some pictures of me. When I first started teaching the Word, oh my gosh, it had to be God. I had hair down to here, parted down the middle, wire rim glasses, so skinny. I was six foot one and 128 pounds. My waist was a 27. If I turned sideways, you lost me. And, and I'm up there teaching the, in bell-bottom jeans and t-shirt, and I'm up there teaching the Bible? I look at myself and I go, how did anybody? Well, that's why they were always going, oh, praise God, praise God. And they couldn't look. We all look weird. You know what? There are some people in the world right now to whom you would look weird right now. And they'd look weird to you. But anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Those are two things he goes out over and over again. He is emphatic in what he says. He's emphatic in what he says. In 108 verses, 54 or half of them are commands. Out of 108 verses, half of them are commands. He's not saying pray about it. He's saying, just like he did in the book of Acts, my sentence is, all right, 54 verses, he commands you to do a certain thing in the name of the Lord. He's humble. Look what he calls himself in verse 1. A bond servant 
The Greek word there is doulos. Doulos. You know what that means? It means slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That, you know, hey, if you're a slave, watch this now. You're owned. Your life in your own. You exist to obey your master. James, humble. He's got all this spiritual power. My sentence is this and that and the other. But now, he says, I'm a slave, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. James didn't just say he's Lord. He said, I'm his slave. So the first thing out of his mouth is humble. That means something to me, humble. Who's he writing to? The 12 tribes refers to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout Gentile lands. Uh, He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And the day came when that church came under terrible persecution. And it scattered the believers all over the land. Now he's writing, he was the pastor of that church. You know what? That church was about a 200,000 member church. It was huge because God moved in incredible revival in Jerusalem and other parts of of that country uh, when the Spirit of God fell. I mean, it was powerful. It was like a nuclear bomb dropped on Jerusalem. Now, but then persecution came. A lot of it came from Saul, who later became Paul. And and, and so they got scattered everywhere. So he's, he's talking now to Jewish Christians because he says, You're in one of 12 tribes, so that means they were Jewish. So I'm writing to the 12 tribes that have been scattered through persecution. So no wonder he's writing to them about trials working for your good. Because you could wake up, y'all, listen, in the first century, we have no concept of it. The first century was rough stuff. You didn't have hotels. You didn't have nice homes. You didn't have middle class um, prosperity. It was rough. You, you, would, you might wake up one morning and have 12 Roman guards looking down at you saying, do you believe in Jesus who called himself Christ? And if you said yes, dead. Or imprisoned. Or things that I don't even want to explain because it was too hideous what they did to people. I saw one Colosseum in the Middle East. And they would take believers and they would skin them. And then they would pour the ocean salt water on it. And then turn wild animals loose on them in the Colosseum, cheering while they were devoured. For what? I believe in him. So he's writing to them, not addressing, gee, you know, I'm so sorry you got a flat tire. Listen, it's going to work out for your good. Uh Uh-uh. He's talking to people under the gun. Under the gun. Listen, under a a level of persecution, if it were to come on the American church, do you know how small the American church would get in a day? Oh, that'd sift through them quick. So no wonder he's talking about counting it all joy when they fall into various trials. Because they were in constant trials. We count trials as joy, not as an emotional reaction, but a deliberate decision based on what we know. Now, I want you to notice something. 
Look what he says in verse 3. Knowing this, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How in the world can I do that? That sounds insane to me. If I'm in red-hot trials, how can I count that joy? Unless there's something wrong with me. No. There's only one way. What you know. What you know. Look what he says. Knowing. Can everybody say with me knowing? Knowing. How can you count a trial joy? Knowing. So, the word count there in the Greek language means to add up or, or to, to reckon something so. It, it's a mathematical term. It's, it's literally, you're making a decision in your head that you're not going to let the trials that are coming against you, you're not going to let them take you down. You are making a decision to reckon it, count it, add it up, joy. How? Knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. You know, the Bible talks about the sorrow that brings death and the sorrow that brings fruit. The sorrow that brings death is called worldly sorrow. You know what worldly sorrow is? It's when you're having sorrow and there's no hope mixed in it. You're having sorrow and there's no hope. You're having sorrow and there's no faith. So when you're having sorrow or trials and you don't have any hope or any faith in it, then it's not going to be joy. It's going to be the sorrow that works death. It's going to make your hair fall out, turn gray, put wrinkles on your face, rob your sleep from you. The sorrow that works death. But no, James is saying if you know something, you have hope and you have faith. You can see beyond the trial. He said, that's the only way it's ever going to be joy, knowing what you know, what you know. He says, here's my promise. Here's the promise of God by the Spirit. The testing of your faith is going to produce patience. It's going to produce patience. Now, let me tell you what patience is not. It's not passive resignation to adversity. Uh, how many of you would like it if you were at a boxing match and one of the boxers just walked over into the corner ring and put his hands up and said, beat me up. I'll just be patient. And the guy just went over there and began to beat him while the one being beaten was passively responding to adversity. Then you would say, something's wrong with you. You've been in too many fights. That is not what patience is. It is not sitting there, oh well, uh-uh. It's a verb. You're not passively letting circumstances work on you and tear you down and ruin you. Patience is positive steadfastness that bravely endures. It's positive steadfastness that bravely endures. You're keeping on, keeping on. You're not giving up. You're not quitting. You're not putting up the white flag and dying. Even the four lepers in the book of Kings, who were lepers and they were outside of a city that was starving to death, even they said, why sit we here until we die? And they didn't know where they were going. You know what faith is? Faith is when you get up and you start walking and you don't know where you're going. <laughs> you don't know where you're going. Abraham didn't know where he was going. God said, come out of Ur, of the Chaldees, and just go. 
well, where am I going? I'll show you. Just go. The man just started walking. He didn't know where he was going. Hey, if you know exactly where you're going and exactly what the result is going to be, why do you need faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So these, these four lepers, they got up and said, you know what? If we sit here and do nothing, passively receiving adversity, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we're going to die. If we walk towards the Syrian army, we're probably going to die too. But we're not going to sit here. Come on, everybody. How many people just sit there and die? That's a word. Just sit there and die. Well, nothing's ever changed. I'll just sit here and die. You know, there's a lot of people who have died while they're still walking around. They've given up on life, given up on relationships, given up on people, given up on their dream, given up on their future, given up on themselves. Even four lepers. And when they began to move towards the Syrian army, God made them hear the sound of hundreds of horses and they fled and there was nothing there. God blesses moving objects. Huh? So, so when he says, when he says trials will produce patience, he doesn't, he's not talking about just sitting there until you die. He's saying you are bravely moving forward in faith. You are enduring and God will eventually bring a breakthrough. But in the meantime, it's going to produce in you patience without which you can't be complete. We don't, you know, if, if I did a tape tonight on patience, it wouldn't sell hardly at all. If I did a tape on prosperity, you know, God's going to give you a car and a house and a million dollars in the bank, they'd sell like crazy. The body of Christ has been so, so robbed of true Christian teaching that we expect things from God he never told us he was going to do. We have a whole generation of believers utterly unprepared to suffer. He's preparing them to suffer. He's admitting you're going to suffer. Okay? Thank you, James, for being truthful. <clears throat> okay. So look what it says. <clears throat> Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. So there's something about patience, y'all. When you get something, that, when you get that steel-like something built inside of you, that character attribute of patience... There's something about it. You know, I was telling somebody the other day, I forget who it was, they had just come in out of rush hour traffic. And they were in a bad mood. And I said, you know what? If you can be patient in this world, you've got one up on most people. Because most people cannot be patient. They hate you if you're patient. If you're driving down the highway, going the speed, you know, today, twice, I had two different guys try to race me. I was going to the store, going to the store and coming back. One of them was a Trans Am, pulled up next to me in my little Z. They see that Z and they think I race. And all of a sudden I hear this, rum, rum. I look over, he's got his cap on backwards, he's got his woman in the front seat with him, and he's looking at me. You think that Z's bad, bub? And when it turned green, I mean, he put the pedal to the metal, and I saw him looking through his rearview mirror, and I just went. <laughs> then coming back, the same, 
It was a different, this time it was a red Mustang. Revved up, souped up, pepped up. I could tell all kinds of work had been done on it. Stick shift. He pulled up to me at a light. Same thing. Looks my car over. There's a look. We're going to race. You want to race? And it, it, it just occurred to me. Listen, if you're patient, you got one up on most people. Because most people, y'all, cannot wait. And if you cannot wait, you're going to make decisions that are going to hurt you. Financial, relational, if you can't wait. There is such power in having patience. And James said, it completes you. So see, if I know that, if I know that, then I can go, you know what? When I come out on the other side of this thing, it may be limping, but I'll have patience. And that's going to complete me. So when you have the right attitude and when you know something, listen, God is never checkmated by the devil. Not ever. Satan never says to God, checkmate. God, he thinks he's going to beat God. But at every turn, in the key moments in the game, God always moves and says to him, checkmate. So here's the checkmate when you go through trials. Satan says, I'm going to destroy you. God says to the devil, when you get to the other side and he's worked patience in you, checkmate. Okay? We're just about done. Be patient. Okay? Now he says, ask for wisdom. Let me just close with this. He says, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. Now, what's the context of this verse? Because a context, a text without a context is a pretext. If you jerk a verse out of its context, you can really damage that verse. What's the context here? Trials. So what is he saying? Ask for wisdom in the trial. What is wisdom? I'm going to tell you what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing events through God's eyes. It's seeing events through God's eyes. I'm going to say that again. Wisdom is seeing events through God's eyes. There's two perspectives when you're in a trial. Your perspective, and that's when you're going, oh me, oh my, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? It's all over with. I'm finished. I'm blah, blah, blah. Then you pray. And here's what God does. God shows you the events through his eyes. And that's wisdom. And it delivers you. I'll give you an example. You remember when uh, uh, Elisha was in that city with his little servant? I think it was Gehazi. And they wake up one morning and Gehazi got up first. I guess he wanted to go get his coffee first. And he got up to go get his coffee first. And he looks out there. And they are surrounded by the Syrian army. I mean, totally outnumbered. He freaks out. What's he seeing? He's seeing the events through his own eyes. He goes into Elisha, who's a type of Christ. And this is just a picture of praying. He says, uh-oh, it's over with. Hey, you know what? It's been great following you around. It's been great knowing you. We're dead. We're surrounded. And Elisha just yawned and said, Lord, watch this now. Open his eyes. Okay, what is that? That's wisdom. And so all of a sudden, Gehazi sees chariots of fire, horses of fire, vastly outnumbering the enemy that he had first saw when he first got up. 
And then, he, then Elisha said the famous words, there are more with us than are with them. What was the difference? Wisdom. He, he, he prayed and his eyes were open. Now that's what happens when you and I are in, in a trial. If you just go through it yourself, never pray, never give it to God, never ask him about it, then you're only going to experience that trial through the lens of your own limited sight. But when you pray about it and you say, God, what is this financial deal? What is this relational deal? What is this church? What in the world? And if you just get before God, look what he says. Ask of him and he will give to you liberally and he will not upbraid you for asking him. And what will it be when he gives it to you? He'll open your eyes. It gives you two things. And I'm going to close with this. Here's what he does when he asks for wisdom. He gives his message to you. His message to you. He's ever the teacher and he'll give his message to you. His message to you. When the disciples were crossing the sea in that boat and the storm kicked up, Jesus was asleep in the helm and he got up and he calmed the sea. What did he do? As soon as he took charge, he taught them. Where's your faith? Don't you remember the fishes and the loaves? How long am I going to have to put up with you people never, never uh, really understanding who you're walking with? And he taught them. Now listen, there's what God, in any trial you're in, he wants to give you a message. He's ever the teacher. Can we say ever the teacher? So if you go to him in a trial and say, okay, Lord, I'm lacking wisdom. Translate it, I, I cannot figure this out. What in the world is going on with me? Then he says, here. And he gives his message to you. Second thing he does is he will give you his view of it. He said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. He's going to give you his view of it. He's going to give you his message in the trial, and he's going to give you his view of it. Let me tell you what I see. I put this in my book, but I'll, I'll close with this. Um, I love snorkeling. Uh, Kathy and I both love snorkeling, and, and we have many, several times gone and been able to go into tropical waters where it's just clear as a bell. Now, it never ceases to amaze me. Before you go under, you're seeing this beautiful, serene, blue or sometimes green, beautiful, crystalline green sea. It's enough to blow your mind right there. But you put on that mask, and you go, Boop, and all of a sudden, a huge world, teeming thousands of multicolored, multifaceted fish, amazing, the coral reefs, rose-colored, pink-colored, brown, and all different kinds, and this incredible world that you could never perceive if you didn't... Now, when you pray in a trial, before you pray, all you're seeing is flat sea. But if you get into the Word and into prayer, all of a sudden, God gives you His view. I'm putting patience in you. I'm here. There's angels around you. I haven't left you. Uh, good things are coming down the road. All of a sudden, you see way more than you did before you prayed. If any man lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask of God, and he will boom, put them on. And that's what happens. It may not be, you know, it may not blow your mind or anything, but he always gives you his view. He'll give you his word, and he'll give you his view. James said, that'll carry you. That'll carry you. Okay? Well, that's enough for tonight. Thank you for your patience. Let's stand together. That's the introduction tonight. We'll, get into, we'll be able to go straight into the scriptures next week. If you needed this tonight, say amen. amen. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Good. Let's pray together and you can be dismissed. I don't guess there will be a parking lot problem tonight. Was it you that pulled up to me today and wanted to race me? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'll tell you, it was so funny. Both of them tore out. See ya. And way down there, they realized he's not with me. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to remember to seek for wisdom when we're in a trial that we can't understand. We pray that you'll open our eyes, put that mask on us where we can go under and see the bigger picture. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.